Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today we're having a very important discussion with Dr. Julia Sadusky. Uh, Dr. Sadusky is a licensed clinical psychologist who's, among other things, a, a fellow at the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute at Wheaton, where she works with the director of the Institute, Mark Yarhouse. Mark and Julia have written two books. The first is Emerging Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experience of Today's Youth, that was published a couple years ago by Brazos Press. And the latest is Gender Identity and Faith, which was published by IVP Academic uh, and released, I think, a few months ago at this point. Uh, Dr. Sadusky, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's so good to be with you, Josh. Now, your academic focus is the intersection of gender identity and faith, particularly looking at how Christians uh, as Christians, we should approach the issue of gender diversity. It's increasingly something that we see on the news, in culture, it's being talked about, and it can be a very difficult subject. It's a very, very um, complex subject, a very intimate subject, a very personal subject. Um, what was it that drew you toward this academic focus? Great question. Yes, yeah, so I was studying at Regent under Mark Yarhouse, and um, he was doing some writing on gender dysphoria, and I was part of his research team. And so a passion of mine had really been accompanying and learning more about the experiences of sexual minorities, so people who experience attraction um, to people of the same sex. And so I, I was really drawn to that through personal experiences of people sharing about that um, in my own personal life, family, friends, and me really wrestling with what does it look like to better show up for those people I love and, and help them think through the questions they're really asking about what it looks like to integrate faith and sexual identity. Uh, so to be honest with you, Josh, I really didn't to my knowledge at least, have much of a frame of reference for the gender identity discussion or, or know of many people in my personal life who had openly shared that experience with me. Um, but Mark was writing on that, he was supervising me. And so honestly, at that time, people were just coming to see me um, for whom that was their story. And you know, the way I often think about it is God really expanded my heart at that time to um, care for, love, and want to better show up for gender minorities, much in the ways that he had for sexual minorities. And as I've done that work, it's really become more of a passion of writing and speaking for me as I've seen the ways we're doing poorly, I think, as uh, faith communities in this space. What in particular, how have you seen faith communities do poorly in this area? And what do you think we can do to be better? That's yeah, a, that, and that's so, a whole conversation. Yeah. I understand that. That's the that's hours and hours of conversation. Um, what have you? So what what have you seen personally to say like, hey, hey these are these are some small things. These are, these are some simple things that don't require huge yeah. paradigmatic theological overhauls. Uh, these are just things we can do sure. to be hospitable and to be kind um, mm-hmm. and, and to be understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the first question we have to wrestle with as um, members of a faith community is, do we actually want people who are wrestling with gender identity in our faith communities? Because I think what I sometimes bump up against as a you know professional consulting with churches or personally hearing the stories of my clients is it's not evident to my clients um, or to loved ones in this space that they are wanted in those faith communities. And so I think really figuring out, are we going to 
put in the effort to make adjustments that we'll need to make, or if we're if we're not willing to do that, how do we be honest about that on the front end instead of stringing people along a bit more of a bait and switch, which of course, as a Christian, I think we're called to <laughs> go go and take those steps. But again, if people are so steeped in in some of the politicization of this topic and some of the vitriol that gets thrown around, I don't think that um, they will do very well serving people. So I guess that's the first thing is moving down into the present moment with the person across from me, as opposed to seeing this person across from me as a representative of political movements, ideologies that perhaps people of faith have questions or deep concerns about. And so if I'm sitting across from a 14 year old, not believing that they're a caricature and that they agree with all of the sociocultural movements, but perhaps asking some really open-ended questions to appreciate how they got to where they are. Um, one other thing I'll say, maybe just to start the conversation here is thinking through the ways in which gender stereotypes get communicated in our faith communities and the ways in which that may do harm to people in the space where it actually reinforces something that I think we as Christians would say um, we don't agree with, which is that there's one way to be a man and there's one way to be a woman in the world. And the more we double down on rigid stereotypes in our faith communities, the more we magnify the experiences of gender minorities and can make people feel as if they don't belong by virtue of um, maybe some differences in how they express or experience their gender. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the book is Gender Identity and Faith. Uh, tell me a little bit about what the book is about, who is written for, and what you hope to accomplish through it. Yes, so uh, Gender Identity and Faith is really a book for clinicians. So if you're listening and you know therapists, um, or you yourself are a therapist, this is your book for how do we effectively meet the needs of clients coming in for whom faith uh, is a very important facet of their life, or has been a part of their life for some time, and they're trying to figure out what does it look like to integrate my experience of gender um, in keeping with my beliefs and values. And how do I do that in a balanced kind of gradual way, as opposed to believing that there's only one way to resolve my experience of gender identity. And so um, that's more of the framework of the book and, and the reason for it, what we're hoping to accomplish is give clinicians who are well-meaning, uh, who are working with conventionally religious people and their families, concrete tools to develop more of a posture and a confident approach to how they're engaging with uh, gender minorities in therapy. What we were seeing and continue to see a lot, Mark and I, when we do trainings, is just a real trepidation and fear among clinicians of how do we do right by people uh, in this space, and especially people who may have questions about some of the sociocultural shifts that we've seen in the last uh, 20 years. And so really equipping clinicians is the goal and doing so in a balanced, psychologically minded way uh, that is ethical, uh, which doesn't always happen when I think clinicians have their own anxieties about how to, how to do right by people. It's difficult because the way in which we talk about gender identity or sexual minorities as a society, um, it comes within the context of what we call the culture wars. And that never foments good discussion. Um, it's an issue we've seen politicized. It, it, it gets so much so, you know, bathroom bills, sports participation and pronouns. It's like the trifecta 
And, you know, and even now, just if you if you mention the word pronouns, you're going to get a whole section of Twitter angry uh, at you for that. And you're like, we're not we're not having any discussion of meaning or substance and the humanity of people, regardless of their gender experience, is being lost amid all of this. Um, what can we do to get rid or push away those less helpful conversations and begin to cultivate more helpful conversations? Mm -hmm. I think the first step is what you're doing right there, Josh, which is recognizing how easily we can get swept up in that. And I think on the front end, it will be catching ourselves. When we start to feel ourselves get activated, angry um, about some debate. So somebody talks about their own gender identity or that of a friend, maybe your child comes home from school and says, oh, mom, my friend today said they're non-binary. And you start to feel that activation happening, the anger, the frustration, the fear response. What does this mean about the culture and where we're moving? And to really slow that down. Oh my gosh, I'm responding to my kiddo right now. <laughs> and how do I show them that I want them talking with these, about these things with me? And so if I respond with anger, if I respond with fear, if I respond with um, dismissiveness, then my child is probably not going to look to me as a resource in their conversation. They're going to look to the um, dominant narratives in the culture. And so to your point, recognizing when we start to do that, slowing that down, even as something as simple as taking a few deep breaths and saying, okay, my child is telling me about a friend at their school and something that friend told them about today. How do I be non-reactive in this moment and simply, if nothing else, take in what they're saying? Oh, thanks so much for telling me what your friend told you today at school. And then perhaps when I'm not as upset or activated, circling back and doing something that a, a dear friend, Meg Batts, has talked with me about, which is, you know, how do we communicate a position about perhaps norms of sex and gender uh, that are in keeping with our Christian beliefs and do that while also communicating a posture to people who are exploring and actively asking these questions. So perhaps a position is that, um, you know, I don't believe that gender is purely on a spectrum and that there's no norms that have value around gender identity and, that's my position on gender identity theory, but my posture towards you know, this kid in your class, honey, is that I want them to be able to come over to our house for play dates and I wanna to get to know them better. And I'm so glad that you can be a friend to them. So that, that would give you one example of kind of how do we move into more meaningful conversation and, and perhaps think through what is my posture? What do I want that to be? And what is Christ calling me to? in the particular relationships with people he puts in my path. I think we've done a little bit more work thinking about our position on gender theory as Christians, which I, I, I'm not opposed to, and I think there's value to that, and a lot less on how do we effectively engage with real people. And that would be um, a much more fruitful thing to take to prayer, I, I think, than as simply the fears and anxieties about some of the sociopolitical shifts that we're seeing today. Mm -hmm. An important foundation of the book uh, is something I think that, that um, Mark talks about in all his books, the three different lenses through which um, people perceive gender identity. Can you, can you give us an overview of those perspectives and which one you feel is most helpful? Sure. 
So um, the three lenses, you're right, Mark Yarhouse really coined this um, early on in, in some of his development of an approach to gender identity, um, three lenses through which people often view these conversations, one being integrity lens, one being disability lens, one being diversity lens. And they're called their names, not because Mark is saying, or I'm saying the integrity lens has the most integrity, um, but, but because people in that group would talk about gender identity using some of the language of the titles of those lenses. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, people who are drawn to an integrity lens would be those who really emphasize God's creational intent for sexuality and gender identity. And so when we're thinking about things like gender dysphoria or gender atypical expression, people from that lens would say that, you know, God had a plan in Genesis one and two. And when people experience a gender identity that's different from male and female, they are willfully disobeying God's creational intent. It's a violation of the integrity of male-female distinction. So people out of that lens would say the solution then for gender dysphoria is repentance, almost of like a sin condition. Um, and so the desire to cross-dress would be seen in moral categories and moral terms. Um, so that's integrity lens. And why, why do people say it's the integrity lens? Well, people in that lens say it has the most biblical integrity, again, drawing primarily from Genesis 1 and 2, not exclusively that. The disability lens people would say, hey, wait, let's talk about Genesis 3, the fall of humanity. And so there are many ways in which gender identity, like every other experience, is touched by the fall. And people who are drawn to this lens might say that, you know, gender dysphoria would be then a consequence of the fall, almost likened like a disability to be responded to with compassion and empathy. So distinguishing that from the integrity lens, we would say disability lens people would not put it purely in moral categories. They would say that the gender dysphoria is a non-moral reality to be treated with compassion. And so what's the kind of approach there if you accompany people in this fallen world? And then that brings us to the diversity lens, which is really the dominant represented lens in our culture today. Um, certainly my field of psychology overwhelmingly is drawn to this lens, which would say that gender um, differences, so, so gender identities beyond male and female are expected, normative, and to be celebrated. They tell you something about a person's identity, who they are, um, their community, where they belong, and the way to discover meaning and purpose in their life is to adopt an alternative gender identity, which ought to be celebrated as another form of human diversity. And so what do you do out of that lens? You celebrate gender dysphoria as an expression of normative gender identities. And so you can see how quickly we speak past each other when we look at how different each of these three lenses are in their presuppositions and also the ways they would think about accompanying people. So you asked me, which of the lenses do I think is most helpful or or best and um, spoiler alert, I, I don't think any one of them fully helps us respond to gender minorities. Um, Mark has, you know, really coined this, but I'll, I'll riff off of some of what he's done there, which is just that, how do we take what is best in each of the three lenses, integrate them? So, so how do I do that, right? You may be wondering, and I, I think people listening will do this differently. Um, 
which is what makes it such a worthwhile conversation. But for me, you know, when I look at scripture, I do think that there is something good, blessed by God about sexual distinctions in Genesis one and two. I think there's something instructive there for us about the human person in the, and, and, and about who God is actually in the ways in which he made us male and female. Um, at the beginning of time. And I, and I think that's worth reflecting on uh, perhaps and taking seriously. So I'm not prepared to be a strict diversity lens person who says that doesn't matter. Um, and most extreme diversity people would say that that binary actually does harm to, to all people. And, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take that. I think there's something to be savored and, and reflected on from the integrity lens. What I, what I think the integrity lens is missing is effective pastoral care. Um, and the moralization of gender diverse experiences. You know, I don't notice people waking up one day and saying, I'd really like to have gender dysphoria. When I sit across from a five-year-old who has had gender dysphoria since about age three, they tell me, I know I'm born, let's say female, and I would love to just be a female in the world, but I experience myself as a male. And that sucks for me. That is painful for me. And so I don't see people choosing these experiences. So I appreciate that I disabilities lens as ability to highlight that we live in a fallen world. And, and I think we should take Genesis 3 very seriously. And so how do we help accompany people and offer compassion and understanding even to the challenges of a person who has an enduring experience they did not choose? Um, and then the diversity lens, I, I think for many Christians, this is actually the hardest lens to appreciate. Um, it confuses us to say there's anything of value. Many of the parents I meet with will say there is nothing of value in the diversity lens. And as I've sat with that one and reflected and brought it to prayer, I think some of the things that really strike me out of that lens is the way it does answer questions of identity, community, meaning, purpose for gender minorities. And it does that quite well. I mean, it gives quite a compelling vision for a life where they can thrive, you know? And I don't see similar narratives being offered that are life-giving within our faith communities. And so I think even if the solutions offered by people who are strict diversity lens people are different than what I would offer, I can appreciate why it's so compelling. And I can take that back to my own prayer and say, what does it look like for a, a person with gender dysphoria to thrive as a person of faith? What does it look like for them to discover identity, belonging, meaning, purpose in their life? And do I care about helping them figure that out? And if I don't take the steps to communicate that care, then why am I surprised when they leave our faith communities? Um, and so I, I think that's where the responsibility uh, gets pulled for us to show up and to take seriously those questions that all humans ask. And how are we going to effectively offer um, and accompany people as they find their own answers for how they're going to find that in their life and hopefully in their faith? Mm -hmm. it's, it's such a, it's a multifaceted, nuanced um, experience. And in, in the book, you have so many different uh, case studies and vignettes that talk about the different ways different people experience gender dysphoria or transgender identity. Um, right. That it's not it's not everyone feels exactly this. It's it's you know different people, different ages, 
and they that want different things and and find different solutions that what might be a healthy solution for one person uh, would be deeply damaging for another person. Um, And like one thing that I see in, in, for example, in a, in a disability framework, even the integrity framework might be a a sense of, um, well, let's not think about it. You shouldn't be having these feelings. You shouldn't have that. So, you know, it's bad. Let's revert back to whatever the stereotypical maleness or femaleness is where the diversity lens almost does the opposite and just says, well, let's don't think about it. Let's just celebrate it and move on. And whether, you know, the person in the middle, again, seems like they get lost amid two different sides, trying to pull them in two different directions, rather than letting that individual find out where they need to be at on that journey and what is going to be most affirming for them and uh, will allow them to flourish. Because that answer is probably going to be different for different people in different contexts based on their different experiences. That's exactly right. And I think there's, you know, of course it's simpler if we can give a one size fits all approach for people like, oh, here's the path for you. That feels clean, obvious. Um, And what I always say to my clients is, you know, you're a unique person (laughs) and, you know, you do have particularities to your experience that no one else has. And yet you are not alone in having the experience of exploring or wrestling with gender identity. Um, You're not alone in that. And what I don't want to do and what I would encourage the audience not to do is to prescribe an outcome in every case. Or um, you mentioned this too, to kind of get fixated on how we got here. I mean, that is a huge mistake I think that we make is, well, how did we get here? And if the answer is, oh, we got here because this is normative, so that's it, just celebrate that feels reductive of some of the experiences of some people for whom they wouldn't say that they want are prepared to celebrate their gender identity in the ways that are commonly prescribed. And then on the other end, you know, obsessing over how this came to be and trying to find causal pathways that aren't there and project those onto people, those also don't fully equip us to show up. It's not that again, it's not important. It's that if that's all you fixate on, it's really becomes in my mind more about your comfort with cognitively understanding a phenomenon than about your care and love for another person. So I'm much more of the mind of how do I help grow a person's own curiosity about their story, how they got to where they are, what factors very well may have contributed to the gender experience they have without letting that be prescriptive then of what I'm going to say you have to do about this experience, because to your point, you know, this is not a one size fits all approach. If it was as simple as some of the common simplistic solutions offered to people today, uh, everybody would do the same thing and we wouldn't have a conversation to be had anymore. And that's just not accurate and honest to the nuance of this discussion. A few months ago, I interviewed uh, Dr. Susan Harris Howell, uh, who wrote a book um, called Overcoming Gendered Socialization, uh, also uh, through IVP. Um, One of the key points of her book was that gender has these socio-cultural components that are, you know, kind of arbitrary that we've seen in culture that girls tend to get guided toward more domestic gentler activities and and young boys uh, toward more industrial or rowdy activities. So how 
how much do you see gender as being an expression or influenced by sociocultural tradition? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's that's very fair uh, to recognize that gender is influenced by sociocultural um, kind of experiences or phenomenon that get passed down generationally. Um, I think I would differ with some gender theorists who say it's solely that, that it's solely a sociocultural phenomenon. And yet, um, I, I mean, it's certainly I, I myself and I think all of us are informed by culture in something as intimate and innate, you know, to our experience of self as our gender. Um, certainly, I remember as a little girl believing that girls like to cook and, and feeling confused about why I didn't like to cook, why I wanted to be out playing football with my brothers and, and um that's not the same thing as gender dysphoria, actually, but but you can see how those stereotypes play out in all of our lives. And so certainly, Josh, I think that happens here. And I really see that um, and the reactivity to that as part of the conversation about how we got to where we are uh, with the current sociocultural shifts in gender is there's a strong reaction and pushback to the way in which many people have suffered because of rigid stereotypes. And again, I I think being tempered in that to say, I don't know that all norms then are are overtly doing harm in every case. And I I think that's where we try to remain balanced. How does a framework help? And in what ways do the arbitrary things play out in our churches in ways that don't actually help anybody? Yeah, yeah. One of the things, this is really something that I've been sitting with for the past couple of months, just really, you know, thinking through it myself and then talking to experts as well, like you. Um, so I'm hoping that you'll, you'll be able to, to give me an answer. Um, we are increasingly seeing young people, you know, Gen Z, um, pushing back against traditional gender expectations and gender roles. Uh, I was just reading a study uh, from, from Ipsos, I think last year, they found that Gen Z was four times as likely to identify as uh, transgender, non-binary, or some, some gender queer categorization. Uh, when we rigidly define gender, especially in socialized terms, you know, girls don't like to play with trucks. They don't climb trees. They aren't good at math. Boys don't take care of doll, you know, don't play with dolls. They won't take care of babies. What, whatever it is that, that kind of pushes gender expression um, you know, to the sidelines, well, that increases the middle of the conversation and makes there more area for people then to wonder, well, am I not, you know, I don't feel male because I don't fit this stereotype or I don't feel female because I don't fit this stereotype. So I must be non-binary. I must be, you know, I, I, what do you, do you think that that, that um, rigidity is part of what's driving the increase in in mm. gender queer identity identification. Yeah, but I think it's a really worthwhile thought experiment because I think to say that it would have no impact on the um, expression and exploration of gender of young people today, I think that would be a mistake. I, I think we have to acknowledge that certainly. 
uh, stereotypes, that is the way they do harm, is that they can lead people to feel like, because I don't fit this box, where do I belong? And whether a person acknowledges or adopts a new gender identity out of that place or not, I think we can all agree that that's not a helpful messaging to communicate to young people. Um, who do tend to think a, a bit more black and white in some of these categorizations, at least early on. And so I have certainly seen times where that's the case, where a person is reacting to rigid stereotypes and believing I have to adopt a different gender identity to reflect that, that almost as if I'm not allowed, if you will, <laughs> to um, reside where I am, I have to make adjustments uh, to account for the ways in which I feel different from my peers for gender-related reasons. Um, I also, you know, am thankful for friends and colleagues who um, would remind me, right, that it's not purely that, that, that some people will want to explain away all uh, experiences of gender identity of gender minorities as that, and that would be a mistake. I think people use language of social contagion um, to talk about, oh, people are catching this because of, rigid stereotypes. And yet, um, I think that too is a bit simplistic to account for everybody's experience. And so that language also, I've written about this a good bit, but in my experience is intentionally or unintentionally antagonistic uh, to frame it in, in purely those ways. But it is worthwhile to appreciate how, let's, let's take our faith communities, for instance, how if I go on a women's retreat and we're doing crafts, and um, I've heard this many times, and uh, the men's retreat, they get to go camping and hiking. And I live in Colorado, so I, I hike all the time and I'm bummed, right? It's like, I don't wanna make cards. Like, I mean, I like making cards, but come on, I wanna go on a hike. And, you know, these are the ways in which I think um, even in the structures of small groups or faith community organizational facets of life, we can reinforce that, oh, women like to do this and men like to do this. And if I was 13 and, and I was once and I didn't always align with stereotypes myself, even if it, again, didn't make me question my gender identity, it did make me feel like I was less of a woman. And that is something I think we can push back on and care deeply about, but we've got to stay consistent with that. Then if a child is, you know, painting their hair pink or dyeing their hair pink as a boy, I'm not prepared to say, oh, let me tell you who you are because you like the color pink. I mean, that's, you know, we don't want to be overreactive to the ways in which people express themselves that we tend to put in gendered categories. And we certainly, I would not wanna villainize a young girl who wants to keep her hair short, for instance, to cope with gender dysphoria and to make that out to be more than it is if we're really saying that your hair length doesn't prescribe your gender identity. We have to be consistent in that as Christians. One of the more substantive issues in the current sort of conversation, cultural milieu, is, is whether or not, uh, you know, prepubescent individuals who are expressing transgender identity um, should be allowed to artificially delay puberty. Uh, that's, and that seems rather extreme to me. And that's something that, you know, in past generations, we wouldn't have had the, the technology or the medical ability to do something like this. Um, but it also matters how many of those prepubescent children are we saying, you know, you're at the age of eight or 10 are, walking in, making a very complex and difficult decision that not even adults understand all the complexities of this. And we're asking a child to, to try to make that decision 
um, you know, with their parents. Um, what approach do you think we should be taking with young children in particular who are expressing a diverse gender identity? Mm-hmm. Great question. Yeah, you're you're asking all the easy questions today, <laughs> Josh. Really, wow. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm grateful for them. So, I, I mean, in our book, Mark and I talk about the the approach we take with young children, at least therapeutically, um, and and we kind of talk about what we would describe as gender patience and scaffolding. So let me say what I mean about gender patience. So, you know, we really do want to take a long-term view with kids and not prescribe an outcome prematurely. Um, And by that, I mean, if if a young boy, um, biological male is wearing dresses and enjoys those and is um, with friends, maybe often playing female characters, you know, we would not want to come to that kid and say, hey, would you like us to take you to get blockers? Um, Because that's really prescribing an outcome for that, let's say, eight-year-old. And so I I think we want to be careful about not pushing down any one path in the same way that I would not recommend to parents hiding all of the play clothes that are female. Um, Again, if we're saying that the clothing we wear doesn't cleanly mean anything, it's simply play, then I wouldn't want to prescribe that you get rid of those clothes either. And so that patience does allow you to scaffold a little bit and set limits with kids. And and by that, I do not mean, again, not allowing certain hairstyles, not allowing certain dress, but I mean, like if a kid is going into their neighbor's house and taking play clothes and and borrowing them, then saying, well, you know, we can't go into their neighbor's house and take their clothes. (laughs) Maybe we'll get you some plate clothes that you would like, but we're not, we're going to set a limit there. Um, And not prematurely rushing a process of um, blockers. I mean, again, I work with a lot of very uh, thoughtful parents. And so I want to be careful about how the rhetoric in the media can paint parents in this space as if they're willy nilling, kind of rolling a dice and saying, oh, we're going to do blockers tomorrow. I mean, this is a really painful um, discernment for parents in the case that their child is really wrestling with gender dysphoria on a more physical level. So noticing breast development and having tantrums three nights a week of great distress, mom, dad, can you cut off my breasts? I mean, that's a hard thing to navigate as a parent. And if you're being offered things that could help suppress those sex characteristics, that is a compelling offer when you've got a kid who's really in pain. And so I don't wanna trivialize the parents either and misrepresent how much they wrestle over that um, option. You know, to this point, I, I've seen most parents not go that route. Um, and perhaps that's my sample size. There's a lot of, you know, reasons for that as far as not having a ton of long-term research on how those blockers can impact a, a child's development over time. Um, but I have seen parents benefit from looking into what that option actually entails to be able to know what is it that would happen to the body of our child, what would be the impact of that to help them make a thoughtful decision. And I wouldn't want people to scoff at or moralize the wondering about blockers. Um, I would love to see our faith communities be places where we could critically evaluate that, discern that with a family, instead of saying, I can't believe you're even thinking of that. Don't you know how terrible that is for kids? It's like, well, I bet they do know, they've probably heard that from many people, but they're trying to figure out what will help their child. And 
um, it, it's, it's not easy when there's not a ton of options out there. And so helping parents and myself as a clinician be patient with a child, not jump to conclusions through different ways of expressing themselves, allowing them to express themselves in ways that feel congruent at that age and not being reactive to that or prescriptive of what that means about them long-term. And it's hard because everybody wants to know what's gonna happen. <laughs> where are we going to end up? And I think honest clinicians will tell you, we don't know. And, and I don't know in the case of your child where they'll be 10 years from now, but I want them to be mental and mentally stable and well to the best of our ability. And so we try to focus on things parents can do to be supportive, accepting, loving of their child, not mocking them for gender atypicality, protecting them from that kind of teasing in, in peer environments and church communities. Um, and being an advocate for their child in those spaces. And you can do all that even without knowing where you stand on the blockers debate. So I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast program. Again, the book is Gender, Identity, and Faith by Mark Yarhouse and Julia Sadusky. Uh, this is an academic work. It is geared more toward clinicians. So this is a book that you, 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 can, you can pick it up. You can read it. You're going to get a lot of good information about it. I got a lot of good information about it as a pastor, as a church leader, um, but there might be other resources that you would recommend um, that might be better for families. Um, what what other, what would you recommend for, I think, parents in particular? Yeah, so Mark and I came out with our first book that was really for parents, loved ones, you know, the average layperson who wants to wrap their mind around gender identity a bit more. And so that book, Emerging Gender Identities, uh, has some interesting resources within it as far as advice to parents and pastors. And so that's a bit more accessible and less clinical, although I'm getting some feedback that the gender identity and faith is helpful for a lot of people as well. So, um, you know, take a look if, if that's of interest. You know, I think for many people, just being able to keep up with what some of the researchers in this space are doing. So Mark Yarhouse has his research institute in Chicago. That's a great um, space to find books and podcast interviews and just upcoming research targeted at the experience of Christian parents as their young person is coming out. And so for parents listening, I think that would be helpful to you. Um, Mark and I offer consultations to families. And so that's something if you were, you know, actively walking this out as a family, we're available as resources um, to accompany people and think through some of the complex questions that many people are asking in this space when you have a loved one for whom this is their story. And then finally, um, you know, I, I do offer consultations and workshops to faith-based institutions, so churches and schools who are really trying to better accompany young people and, and children who are wrestling with gender identity. And so, you know, if a podcast is of interest, you can track us on things we're doing like this here today, um, or bringing us in as speakers, myself or Mark and others, to, to really offer some of that um, forward thinking about how can we do better than we have in the past.